Files. This week, we're talking 404 Common Ground, but before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, and iHeartRadio. Also, if you haven't had a chance yet, make sure you head over to Facebook and Instagram to follow the Sassanac Files for all of the latest and greatest details concerning Outlander Season 6 and 7 and Diana Gabaldon's newest book, Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of 404 Common Ground. to all of my wonderful listeners out there. It is so great to be back here with you guys to talk season four, episode four, Common Ground. This episode is not one of my favorites. I don't feel like there's a whole lot to talk about, but the stuff that there is to talk about, well, that's going to be some fun. But before we get into that, I just want to say that I'm sorry because I'm majorly slacking. Last week, I forgot to tell you the big Outlander news, and that is that Outlander is going to be back at New York Comic Con this year. It's going to be Saturday, October 9th, I believe, and I am going to do my darndest to get a ticket. It's limited capacity this year, so the only people that are guaranteed tickets are the people that attended 2019 Comic-Con, they are going to get first dibs on tickets, and also the super fan membership holders are also guaranteed to get badges. And then as the event progresses, you might be able to get tickets via Light L-Y-T-E. So fingers crossed that I can snag one of those because I really just really want to go to the Outlander panel. And it's kind of a bucket list item for me. I know that I'm going to at least get another year to try it because we've got Outlander season seven to look forward to. But yes, it is one of those things that I'm really, really, really holding on to at this point. So if you're like me and you're waiting somewhat impatiently, just know that You've got a little bit longer of a wait on your hands because we do have to wait for tickets to be available on light if you have not attended Comic-Con within the last two years because they didn't have it in 2020. So 2019 ticket holders for New York Comic-Con are guaranteed badge access along with the super fan membership, which to be quite honest, like shame on you, New York Comic-Con. Like why should we have to have a $100 membership and then pay the $40 a day for badge fees on top of that. Do you not realize that we're coming out of a pandemic where people lost their jobs? Like a lot of people lost their jobs. People don't have $100 to be spending on a super fan Comic-Con membership. I mean, I get it. Some people do and, you know, priorities. But yeah, I'm definitely not one of those people. So I am a little bit peeved about that. So that's kind of all the details on that. And then um, today we got a little bit of a... Surprise, we got to see Sam and Kat on a fan art video that Outlander released through social media. So it was just good to see their faces, even though you know it's not like a new, (laughs) it's not a new video. It was definitely taken a few months back, but it was still good to see their faces. It's always good to see new content. 
I'm still holding out for a trailer, guys. I know you're right there with me. As soon as we get some news, I will for sure be hopping on to discuss. So with all of that discussed and out of the way, I feel like a, a weight has been lifted off my chest. I was very irresponsible as your Outlander informant last week. So that's what we got. And without further ado, let's get into common ground. So this episode was very interesting for me. Normally, I watch and I take notes as I watch. And just to give you a little bit of insight, it normally takes me about two hours to get through an episode because I pause it to take notes and write down some of my favorite quotes. This time, I did it a little bit differently because I was watching last night with the full intent to record last night. And then it started thunderstorming really bad. And there was just no possible way for me to take out all of the thunder that was rolling through. Plus, I didn't want to take the chance of losing power three quarters of the way through an episode and lose all of that. So I held off and I'm recording today. So I rewatched the episode to kind of refresh and re-trigger the things that I wanted to talk about. And actually, it was kind of a interesting experience for me because I had all the notes that I took. And then I was having these new thoughts as I was kind of watching. One thing that really struck a chord with me this time I have the great fortune in life of still having all four of my grandparents alive and well, and it is one of my absolute favorite things in the world to talk to them about our family history and our heritage, and especially my paternal grandfather. That matters a lot to him. I think I get um, my curiosity about where we come from, from him and his side of the family. And here recently, I had a chance to discuss with him My ancestors were some of the first people to settle the Indiana Territory, and he was telling me about some of the stories that his grandfather told him of what that experience was like, and it really resonated with me watching Jamie and Clara go through all of the things that they go through in this episode because my ancestors, much like Jamie and Claire, were dealing with unfriendly Native Americans and wild animals and things like this, a very untamed wilderness. I told my grandpa, I said, you know, some of these stories that you tell me remind me of the little house in the big woods. (laughs) That's the little house on the prairie series. For those of you that may not be listening from America, that's a very integral part of our culture, I think, Little House on the Prairie, it's something that almost everybody's read in school, I think. It was written by Laura Ingalls Wilder, and it details the story of her life growing up as a pioneer. So when my grandpa was telling me these stories about how my family was run out of Indiana multiple times because of the Native Americans. They weren't as friendly as the Cherokee that Jamie and Claire encounter. In fact, I believe that my family had their cabin burnt down more than once. And Lord knows what they did to deserve that. You know, I I totally get that this is a one-sided story. We are only getting my family's side of the story. I'm sure that the Miami tribe that drove out my family did not see it the same way. I told him, I said, yeah, like I get it. It's not right that 
your great grandparents had their house burnt down, but at the same time, they were trespassing. This wasn't theirs to settle in. And the Miami were just protecting what was theirs. As far as we know, there was no agreement there. It was much like, uh, okay, here we are, and this is ours now, and you just need to get out. I was talking to my brother, and, and he said, if anybody has a right to be pissed off this day and age, any group of people or any culture, it's the Native Americans, because they are still living on these tiny little reservations that early Americans drove them to. And nothing has really changed for them. Like that, that really sucks. So I think that the Outlander crew did a good job of portraying what it was like for Native Americans, especially when we get to the next episode, Savages. It really calls into question, who's the bad guy here? And so that's something that I'm looking forward to discussing next week. This week, it was all about finding common ground. And I thought it was a good episode title because not only are we exploring Jamie and Claire and Ian trying to find commonality with the Cherokee, but you're also looking at Roger trying to find a middle ground to start over with Bree. I think that whenever we're seeing the portrayal of the Cherokee, the producers and the director and the editors, they all did a really good job of threading that uneasiness into this episode. I feel like, especially for early settlers, there was a language divide, there was major cultural differences, and it's easy to be scared of that. We still see that in in today's society where people of different religions and cultures and belief systems they scare us. And it takes a minute to step back and realize that these people aren't that different from us and that we have a lot more in common than we think we do. And I think that's what all of this episode is about because they're able to thread the uneasiness of experiencing that new culture and seeing it from an outsider's perspective and wondering Do they intend to hurt us? What is their goal here? And really having that uncertainty, like it's scary. And especially Jamie and Claire have heard the horror stories of people having their houses burnt down, of quote unquote Indians coming in and scalping outsiders, murdering groups of people. Like they've heard all of these horror stories, some of which I'm sure were true and some of which I'm sure were like not true at all. It's it's hard to know if who is standing in front of them is going to be one of the more friendly tribes or if they're going to be one of those people who murder them in their sleep. There's a lot of uncertainty behind that. And living out in the wilderness, there's not a lot of protection. Like if these people want you dead, you're dead. And so I think that this episode does a great job of really keeping us on the knife's edge all through the episode until at the end when they realize, like I said, they come to the conclusion that we have a lot more in common with these people than we think we do. The best example of that, to be honest, is when we are watching the whole Skiliona montage 
and it's intercut between Jamie's experience hunting the bear and the Native Americans walking through the woods with their torches. And you're wondering, okay, are the Native Americans coming to burn down Jamie and Claire's hut? What's going on? Are they ill-intentioned or are they going to help? And I think that right up until the end when Jamie kills the bear and we realize that they were doing some sort of ceremonial ritual with the same intent that Jamie had to get rid of this Skeliona. Right up until that point when Jamie has the scene with all of the Cherokee and he's talking about he's just a man, not a monster. And the young man says, oftentimes man is monster. I think thought that was a fabulous line because the level of truth in that statement is unparalleled to hardly anything I've heard in recent times. Like, it's just so true. European settlers ruined the Native American culture. I don't think that that is a bold statement at all. I think that's 100% truth. America would be a very different place if European settlers had never arrived here. What we didn't wipe out with our way of life coming over from Europe, we wiped out through disease. The Native Americans just were not, um, their immune systems were not built to deal with a lot of the diseases that we brought over. So a lot of their cultures were wiped out due to illness. And then what wasn't wiped out due to illness, we freaking just obliterated and we took it for ourselves. So to see that element of it, it's really just brutal. And that statement really makes you see the Cherokee are saying, you may have good intentions, but there was no way of us knowing that. We're just trying to protect what is ours based on past experiences dealing with the white man. Most white men do not come in peace. So how are we supposed to know any different with you? I think they they come to an understanding with Jamie and they come to respect him. And we see that a lot when they come to visit him and Claire and Ian and John Quincy Myers at the fire. And they give Jamie a name, which is something... Almost like he's being adopted into the tribe in a way. Uh, he has a Cherokee name, Yonadihi, which means bear killer. And I was talking to my mom about this because we were, whenever I was rewatching earlier today, I said, I think that we will see some of this season four stuff come into play in season six based on some of the stuff that I have heard about filming. I'm really excited to kind of see it all come back. Because I do think that it was a valuable part of Outlander season four was the seeing the different native cultures. And I think it was accurately portrayed. I think that they have something to be proud of because even the First Nation actors, they were very impressed with the clothing and the sets. The language was accurate. Meryl Davis and Matt Roberts spent a lot of time consulting with the First Nation in Canada to make sure that these cultures were being portrayed accurately. 
I think that they definitely have something to be proud of and how they did it. The unfortunate part about how the show was created is that because the Native Americans were driven off of their lands and were kind of seen as unimportant in the grand scheme of history, there's not a lot of their culture left and preserved for historical accuracy. So a lot of it is guesswork on the part of the creators of the show, the costume department and the set department. Yes, they did as much research as they could, and they spoke to as many um, Native Americans as they could to get as accurate as they could be. But it's still like we're never going to have 100% of what life was like because much of Native history is orally spoken. Like I said, there's not books and there isn't preserved textiles and things like that. Like, yes, we have pottery shards and things like that, but they can't go check a book out of the library to find out what Native American clothing looked like, like they can to to accurately portray 18th century Paris in season two. So I think they did a good job with what they had. And I think that the way that they portray the, this culture is extremely respectful. So I applaud the Outlander producers for that. Another thing that I really enjoyed about this episode was the moments of domestic bliss with Jamie and Claire. Um, I feel like every season, Sam and Kat are just like, yeah, this season we actually get some domestic moments between Jamie and Claire where they're just enjoying each other and blah, blah, blah. And every season I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this is domestic bliss. Like, these people go through so much. And I think that this episode was a great isolated example of how this goes. So yes, they have these moments of quiet joy where they get to enjoy each other. And I think those are the moments that Sam and Kat are like, yeah, there's more domestic bliss in this season. But then the majority of the episode is them having this conflict with the Native Americans and there's so much uncertainty on whether things are going to work out. So I love (laughs) the dichotomy of that, that there's like two completely different ideas of what Outlander is. You've got this perfect love story, but you've got this 100% in danger all the time. Somebody or something is always in peril. But I really did enjoy the scenes between Jamie and Claire in this episode. They're so cute. The two that really stick out to me are um, the first scene is it's probably within the first 15 minutes where they're surveying the land and Ian kind of wanders off with Rolo and Claire's quoting the song America and Jamie's like, oh, that's a cool poem. And she says, well, actually, it's a song. And it's to the same tune as God save great George, our king. And Jamie's like, so you're telling me that the Americans stole something from King George and made it their own? And she said, we did. And he was like, heartily applauded then. (laughs) I mean, Jamie literally just reaffirmed his vow to be loyal to king and country in order to get this 10,000 acres. But that doesn't change the fact that he's still Jamie underneath. He's still a Jacobite who believed in what he fought in and nearly died for at Culloden. He doesn't 
like the British at all. But he realizes it's a necessary evil to make something of himself in this world. So I really like that scene. And then to see where it goes with him and Claire, and he's like, sing it for me, Sassanac. <laughs> he says, no. It's just so cute. It's so cute to see them happy. It feels nice after everything that these people have been through to see them at peace with their lives at this point and that they still are so crazy hot for each other. Like, I think that that is one of the great things about this series is that Jamie and Claire never lose their passion for each other, ever. I think it's a common misconception that as you get older, you lose your sex drive. And to see that you have these two that are middle-aged and still just as hot for each other as they were when they first got married, and that it continues as they get older, they go past middle age into their 60s, and they are still just hot and heavy for each other. And it's really great to see. This scene just cracks me up every time because... He's talking about how when she sings all polite and proper in church, it just really turns him on. He says, I must admit, it makes me want to do indecent things. (laughs) Oh, God, Jamie, you crack me up. Anyway, so I loved that scene. And then it kind of bookends nicely to the second scene, which is at the end of the episode when they are building their cabin and Jamie carries her over the threshold and says it's something that I never got to do before but I want to carry my wife over the threshold and he's talking about how he envisions this cabin with their bed facing the east to watch every sunrise and a big table for their family dinners and a big hearth that he'll do a hearth blessing on just to know that he has thought in great detail about what he wants this house to be He wants it to be a home for him and Claire together. And I think it's so beautiful because it's what Claire told him she wanted last episode. Like, I just, I just want a home with you. That's what I want. So to see that he is building this home and he's thought of her every step of the way with her little herb shed that he's going to build her and, and everything. It's really just so beautiful to see that every decision he makes he bears her in mind and puts her above every other priority in his life. It's it's a gorgeous sentiment. But before they got this land, they had to accept a deal with the devil, as Jamie put it, and they had to deal with Governor Tryon. And so to see that this episode opened up with Jamie signing the land grant and speaking with Governor Tryon, Tim Downey does such a fantastic job of playing Governor Tryon. He's clearly a politician. Everything that Governor Tryon says has a double meaning to it. On the surface, he is very diplomatic and not kind, but polite, I guess. But underneath, there's almost a hint of warning or threat. And I really felt that this time around when I was watching He says, those who live in defiance of his majesty's laws are no better than barbarians and should be treated as such. And so he's talking about the regulators, but I really think that he 
is warning Jamie at the same time because he knows where Jamie comes from. He knows Jamie's history, that he was a Jacobite and he has a history of being a rebel. So it's this thinly veiled threat that if things are to go the other way and you ever double cross me, there's going to be hell to pay. Don't think for a second that I'm going to let it slide. At least that's how I took it. And that's, like I said, something new that I picked up on this last time. Perhaps it's because this is the first time I'm watching this episode since season five came out. And so I'm watching that with fresh eyes, with more insight into that situation. But I really felt that threat underneath. And I think the Governor Tryon is dealing with a lot right now at this point in history because of the regulators. I like that he put it out there that, you know, like, it's not all the regulars fault. Like, my sheriffs are exacerbating matters, saying that some of them are dishonest and that the taxes that his people are paying aren't necessarily breaching the treasury. So he acknowledges that there is a problem on both sides. But also, Governor Tryon was notorious in life for having dishonest people around him and being one of those people that took every opportunity to pad his own pockets. He kind of had to sleep in the bed that he made in a lot of respects. You can't surround yourself with people like that and expect things to go swimmingly. (laughs) You just can't. I do like that he kind of acknowledged that, you know, okay, maybe they do have something to be pissed about, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that their behavior is okay either. So I thought that that was interesting, but the big takeaway from that scene between Tryon and Jamie is when Tryon's like, so I gather that you have supped with princes and paupers. And Jamie says, I have, your excellency. And then Tryon looks at him and says, it's said that the Highlander has much in common with the Indian savage. Do you believe it so? Jamie just kind of pauses and thinks, realizing he has to be careful with his words around such a powerful man. This isn't new to Jamie, this walking a fine line between who he is and who he wants to be perceived as. He is very familiar with having that two-facedness in the face of people with power. I'm thinking about how he acted with the Duke of Sandringham, with how he acted with his own uncles, how he acted with King Louis and Prince Charlie. These are all people that he, Jamie has a lot of experience with walking this line. And whenever he says, savagery comes in many forms, your excellency, I've witnessed it in both Prince and Pauper. I thought that was an extremely clever line. The undercurrent of this episode, like I said, it's there with Governor Tryon, but then Jamie kind of throws it in too and is saying, it's not just the natives behaving this way. There is always a give and take in a situation. People can only take so much before they start to give it back. And that it's not necessarily a matter of whether you are rich and powerful or not, you can still be a savage. Like Blackjack Randall He wasn't a pauper by any means, but he wasn't rich and powerful. He wasn't a duke, but he was still savage. Stephen Bonnet, absolutely another level of savagery. It's all in what you make of it. 
And I love that Jamie was like, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a prince or a pauper. We all have an equal opportunity to embrace the darker sides of ourselves. And I think that was as much a warning to Governor Tryon as Governor Tryon's thinly veiled warning to Jamie. And then we kind of move on to the scene where Jamie and Claire are getting ready to leave Wilmington. And we see Marsley's well-defined baby bump. It is very clear how much time has passed. I feel like it's so easy to lose track. And I know I've said this over the past couple of episodes, but especially as we get into our time in America, time seems to click along at a much faster pace. Like somebody changed the pacing on the metronome. Like it's just moving along very quickly. So I think Marsley is pregnant quite frequently in the Americas. And it's a very understated way of cataloging how much time has passed. So we're looking at, she announced she was pregnant in the season four premiere, and she's clearly like six, probably six or seven months pregnant at this point. So that's how much time has passed from 401 to 404. I thought that that was very clever, but also kind of a wake up call because it's so easy to think that not a lot of time has passed, especially with the way that they portray things in this show. Like when we see Jamie and Claire going from Wilmington to Fraser's Ridge, it seems like it's a couple hours in the wilderness, but Jamie and Claire live a week's ride away from civilization. I think that is something that show watchers don't necessarily realize because the show kind of makes it seem like everything's right there together and that they're just a couple, like a couple hours outside of town. No big deal. No, they are out in the middle of nowhere, literally the very edge of civilization. They live as far out as the boundary of Britain's territory allows. So their boundary pushes right up against the Cherokee lands. And so I think that is another reason that the Cherokee have such an issue with Jamie and Claire being there because They've already been pushed out so far and they're like, okay, now you're infringing upon our territory again. Like, what the fuck? It makes sense why the Native Americans are kind of pissed that Jamie and Claire are there. But anyway, what I was starting to say was that I love that scene between Marsali and Claire because you're starting to see the evolution of their relationship. They're becoming much more friendly with each other versus where we were this time a season ago. It also serves as kind of a looking glass for Claire in a lot of ways to see Marsali struggling with where she is in her life. She's expecting her first child and she's missing her mother. And Claire remembers how much she missed her mother when she was pregnant with Brie. And of course, that reminds her of Brie and where Brie could be at this stage in her life. Like Marsali could easily be Brie missing her mother and... Jamie notices Claire's very quiet and just kind of far away. And when he asks her about it, she says, sometimes I wonder if I was right to leave Brie because there's so much that Brie is going to go through and it's terrible to not have your parents around to guide you as you're going through these things in your life. You have to figure it out for yourself and that's the harder road to hoe. (laughs) It's very realistic to see that Claire is worrying about her daughter 
I think it would be more of a red flag if everything was just hunky-dory and Claire never thought of Brie ever. And to see that as we flash back and forth between um, the 1970s with Brie and Roger and the 1770s with Jamie and Claire, that there is that level of concern radiating from both sides of the plot. I appreciate that for sure, but it also gives us a wonderful opportunity to see Jamie being Jamie. Like, let's just give this guy another reason to be perfect. He says this wonderful line to Claire, which is my quote of the episode, when he says, When I was without you, I held on to thoughts of your face, your words, your heart. I clung to those memories when I didn't want to stand, and I was thankful for them when I could. Our daughter will do the same. I think that brings a lot of comfort to Claire, because Jamie's been there, and he knows probably more than any other person in the world, how Brie is feeling in that moment. And to know and be able to offer comfort to Claire that it's going to be hard. I'm not going to lie to you about that, but she'll be okay. It was really good to hear that. And I think that's what Claire needed. And so that's why she just kind of gives him a sad smile and takes a deep breath and keeps going because it really did help. The topic that I want to close out on is Brie and Roger. They're not in this episode a lot, but I'm glad that we kind of keep tabs on them because the next couple of episodes, we don't really get a lot of them. It picks up with Roger. He's back at Oxford. It's been a month, I think is what they said, since the proposal. And he's clearly regretting how he handled things with Brie. Clearly still in love with her and wants to talk to her, wants to have a reason to be near her. And I think that's something we can all identify with. Whenever he looks at that book, I I thought it was so ironic that it's literally the book that Brie gave him that puts the puzzle pieces together and leads him in the right direction to find Jamie and Claire in America. This is something that's not in the book. It's It's TV show created, but it's so clever. I love it. Grandfather Mountain is so beautiful. I've been a couple of times now. Like I 100% understand how Jamie and Claire ended up settling there in this fictional world because it is one of the most gorgeous areas I think I've ever seen. Like I could move there, just pick up and move and be completely happy because it's absolutely amazing. I also want to go to the Highland Games at Grandfather Mountain, which for those of you that are also curious, They're the first full week in July, like the games start July 8th, and I'm so sad. I thought that they were in September for some reason. I was really hoping to go this year, but now the tickets are sold out, and so yeah, yet another year of not getting to go, but maybe next year, right? So they still do the Highland Games that Brie and Roger attended in the last episode, And it's actually a big festival and it's really freaking cool. Like really cool. I really want to go. Attendance is limited this year because of COVID and, and they're still trying to open things up. So it's understandable, but it still makes me a little bit sad. But anyway, in the lead up to the big cliffhanger of this episode, Brie and Roger have a conversation. And I thought that Rick Rankin and Sophie Skelton did a great job with this because I really just wanted to pull them out of the screen and slap them because 
their facial expressions are so perfect. Like, you know, when you're on the phone with somebody and you're having a conversation and you're saying one thing, but you really want to say another, or you're waiting for somebody to make a move and they just don't, like, they're both doing that. They're both like awkward moments of silence and then like, oh, well, I have essays to mark when he's really wants to be like, I love you and I want to get back together. And she's saying, oh, yeah, I was just thinking about you. I'm hoping you had a good holiday when she's really like, I love you and I want to get back together. You know, like (laughs) these these things that these characters I'm like, and I feel like this is a a clear dividing line between who Roger and Brie are as a couple versus who Jamie and Claire are as a couple, because Jamie and Claire would just come out and say it. They're very honest people and they don't like to keep things inside. Whereas Brie and Roger, for obvious reasons, both of them have lost so much in their lives that they're very introverted at times and they don't want to come out and say what they mean like they're they're almost shy about it they're not as great of communicators as I touched on in the last episode so it really does have this really frustrating quality I was just getting so frustrated with this phone call because you can see how much they mean to each other and at the same time they just can't bring themselves to be honest with the other person And I think that there's a lot of hurt on both sides from what happened at the games and they're trying to get past it, but it's still really fresh. They're having a hard time with it. So I get it. I do. On a human level, I get it, but it's also extremely frustrating. At the end of the episode, Roger talks to Fiona. And can I just say, I think that Fiona is probably one of my favorite show characters. She really comes into her own at the beginning of season four. Her and Roger have become such great friends. I love the scenes between them. And I think the the actress that they have playing her is, is perfect. I actually like Fiona a lot more in the show than I do in the books. But I think that it really gives us a, a good way to get into Roger's head a little bit. She's probably one of Roger's only really good friends. She's known him since he was little. And there's just something to be said about a bond like that. People that you grow up with know you in a way that people you meet later in life probably never will because they were there during your formative years and understand the situations that have made you into the person that you are. So I think it's good for Roger to have Fiona and then to find out that she knows that Claire went back in time to Jamie Fraser. <laughs> the look on Rick Rankin's face, like, it's so fantastic. He's just like, um, say what now? <laughs> um, and she just kept her mouth shut about it this whole time, just waiting for for somebody to give her the opening. He's just like, uh, yeah, when when her mom took a trip and found the lost love of her life. And she's like, you mean when she went back in time to meet Jamie Fraser? (laughs) Oh my God, it was great. It just gave me a little laugh. And she kind of does put it into perspective a little bit when she says, well, it must have been really hard for her being parted from her mother like that, her being Brianna. Yes, on some level, Roger knows that, but I I think it's something that doesn't really register with him right away. 
And then on top of that, you get the obituary that is thrown in his lap. Like, holy crap, you know, that's a lot. And it's not so much the dread of having Brianna find out that her mom died. Like, Roger is close to Claire as well. That has to be devastating for him. And so when he's thinking about how much he's hurt in that moment, finding out that Claire has died, despite the fact that she's been dead for 200 years at this point, like, it still is a very immediate and visceral reaction that he's having. And he doesn't want to put Brie through that. Like, he's just given her this glimmer of hope when he tells her that her mom found Jamie and they lived happily ever after. Like, she, Brie can hold on to that and envision that in her mind, and he doesn't want to take that away from her. I think that's admirable, but also I can see the flip side of the coin in that she does have a right to know what happened to her mother. However unpleasant it is, she has a right to know that. And the fact that he sat on that news for a week before he told her is not good. Not good. I, I understand that. But he's very human in that aspect. That he doesn't make the right choice all the time. And I, I can appreciate that for what it is. The kicker is that he put it off and by the time he decided to call and tell her, she was gone. I think knowing that her mom was happy with her biological father. She was just missing her so much and that that was the trigger for her. Um, and she decided to go back. And I, that scares Roger because the date on the obituary is smudged. So there's no way of knowing Bree could get to Fraser's Ridge only to find Jamie and Claire are already dead. And that frightens him. Also, the fact that Brie didn't bother to tell him that she was deciding to do this had to hurt a little bit because the knowledge of time travel is one of the things that holds their bond together. They're one of the few people in the world that actually know that this exists. So for Brie to just take off and decide to go to the past and go to her mom and not tell Roger, I think does sting a little bit. But that ending, I just thought was absolute dynamite, the way that he just finds out that she's gone and it's like, oh shit. And now he's got to decide what he's going to do. It's a really great ending. I mean, I'm not one for cliffhangers, but at least, (laughs) I don't know how you guys felt about it when you were watching it live, but season four was already completely out when I watched it. So I was fine with it. (laughs) Anyway, so with all of that being said, that brings my analysis of 404 Common Ground to a close. Not really very many comments for listener feedback this week, but there was one person that reached out. Mary Ann Barone on Facebook said, I thought that Outlander portrayed the Cherokee in an amazingly realistic and authentic manner. They gave the audience a glimpse into the hearts and minds of a people we have not seen often honestly portrayed. Agreed. And like I said, throughout the episode, there's so much about the Native American culture that is not mainstreamed. And oftentimes throughout history, because it's so one-sided and because of who has developed Hollywood and entertainment in general, we often do see them painted in a bad light and not at all accurately portrayed So I do. I applaud Outlander and I agree with you, Marianne, 100%. So that was the only comment I got this week. Sad face. 
I love hearing from you guys. So I don't know whether I just posted it at a wrong time and the Facebook algorithm decided it wasn't going to share it with you guys. But that's all I got for you. Performance of the episode this week was Sam Hewen. I thought he did a good job. Although I'll be honest, I thought that everyone's performance was pretty much on par. There weren't a lot of standout moments for anybody, but I thought Sam did a good job with the Skeely Yona bear fight. Like, that's intense. Did that whole fight scene with all that choreography in the dark, like, holy smokes. (laughs) So that really was my reason for giving him performance of the episode, because that's intense. One other thing before we part ways, I thought that the adaptation from book to screen of the Skeely Yona was perfect. In the books, it was an actual bear, and I thought it was a very creative way of still keeping the bear attack in, but without having to spend all of the money and time and energy on a CGI bear and all of that. Like, that just really would have driven the budget out of control. So I think that the Skeleona was a very clever choice and it also helped to integrate the two cultures together and kind of help find the common ground that we were searching for throughout this episode. So I thought that was a really good avenue to take. All right, guys. Well, that wraps up my analysis of 404 Common Ground. Make sure to join me next week when I talk about season four, episode five, Savages. And until then, you guys stay safe out there and I will chat at you later. Bye.